Religion and politics. Yep, we're going there. Should the church be mixed up in politics? Since the Bible nowhere mentions democracy or Republicans or Democrats, should religion be kept on one side of a firewall and politics on the other? Is the gospel apolitical so that politics can only corrupt it and distort it? Or on the other hand, should churches today insist that the gospel is inherently political right from the start? And what does all this mean for the church itself, for the kind of mission the church is, and the kind of mission it can become? I'm Matthew Meyer Bolton, and this is Strange New World, a show about understanding the Bible for skeptics, believers, and everybody in between. There's a famous story from the Gospels with versions in Matthew, Mark, and Luke about some religious leaders trying to trip Jesus up. And so they ask him in front of a crowd, Tell us, would you, should we pay taxes to the emperor or not? It's a no-win situation. Not so much a question as a trap. If Jesus says yes, that'll likely rile up the crowds who don't have much love for the Roman occupation. They'll be outraged and turn on Jesus, or at least walk away. But if Jesus says, no, we shouldn't pay taxes to the emperor, well, the Roman authorities will soon enough have him arrested. So the question seems to put Jesus in a bind. How he responds is pretty fascinating and contains a key for how we might think about religion and politics today. He says, bring me a coin. Kind of an odd request under the circumstances, but since we're talking about paying taxes, I guess it kind of makes sense. So somebody rustles up a coin and brings it forward, and Jesus says, all right, whose image is on the coin? And they say, uh, the emperor's. And Jesus says, watch him now, give to the emperor what belongs to the emperor. Which seems to suggest that he's saying, yes, we should pay imperial taxes. But then he adds, and give to God what belongs to God. Now, what does that mean? That little addendum, those eight words, they upend the whole apple cart. They transfigure the situation by putting it into the biggest, widest frame imaginable. They bump things up to a higher level. Or if you like, they bump things down to a deeper, more fundamental level. I mean, what belongs to God, right? Everything belongs to God. Even the emperor and the empire and all of us here in this crowd, including the person holding that coin with the mighty Caesar's tiny little image on it, come to think of it as we look around this scene, where do we find God's image? If we have eyes to see through the book of Genesis, where it says that God creates humankind in the divine image, then we can find God's image in every single person in the crowd. We belong to God, the whole human community, and all creation besides. Not so much in how we look, in Genesis 1, God doesn't have a physical body, but rather in how we live and what we do. 
In Genesis, humanity is made in the image of God to carry on God's work of creative hospitality, of taking care of creation. So, yeah, sure, give to the emperor what belongs to the emperor, and give to God what belongs to God. It's a clever way to sidestep the trap, but more than that, it's a way to step beyond the question's binary either-or, opening up a third way. Neither merely pay taxes to the emperor, nor merely don't pay taxes to the emperor, but rather, yes, pay taxes and, at the same time, in a bigger, wider, deeper sense, remember who you are. God's child, made in God's image, creative, generous, and just. So, yes, Jesus says, by all means, participate in the political life of your particular setting, your government, your local scene, and at the same time, bear in mind that that local scene is set within and permeated by a much, much bigger picture. Don't confuse the two. Don't reduce the wider view down to your local scene. And don't inflate your local scene up into that wider view. Caesar is not God. That's the other piece of drama here. Roman coins circulating in those days typically included an inscription declaring the divinity of Caesar. So, in Jesus' response, when he draws that distinction between Caesar and God— he rather deliciously undermines the emperor's claim to divine status, a kind of subversive wink to the crowds and a warning to the empire. Caesar is not God. Our local political system should never be divinized, and likewise, God should never be reduced to local politics. These two levels of analysis have to be kept clear and distinct. It's as if Jesus says, yes, engage with your local political system, but not as if it has divine status, because it doesn't. And accordingly, on the other hand, human life with God includes every aspect of our life, including political life. There's no separate political compartment. But when we think and speak about politics theologically, we have to focus on overarching themes and underlying principles, lest we fall back into divinizing our favorite politician or political party or ideology. Those things come and go. Thinking theologically about politics means thinking in broad, deep terms that endure. Love for your neighbor, justice for the downtrodden, care for the vulnerable. All right, someone might say, I appreciate the idea that God isn't a Republican or a Democrat. That sounds good. But wouldn't it be simpler if we just kept politics out of the church altogether? Part of the problem here is with the word politics. It can mean both partisan politics, which needs to be checked at the door of church life, and it can also mean politics by a more basic definition, the collective decision-making and action involved in building human community. The word politics comes from the Greek word polis, which means city. 
Wherever human beings live together, we collaborate and compete. And so there's a need for rules and enforcement mechanisms that counteract corruption and facilitate fairness and safety and flourishing. And that means laws and legislation. And that means politics in this basic collective communal sense. You know, agreements to ensure our drinking water is safe to drink, or our roads and bridges are wisely built, or our businesses are good places to work, and on and on and on. Politics in this basic sense is everywhere and unavoidable. So the real question is, how could the church not take an interest in it? Building the beloved community is at the heart of the church's mission of mercy. And by definition, building a merciful community means building a just community. It's not particularly merciful to, say, give food to the hungry, but not ask why there are so many hungry people in the first place, or not work to build a society that cares for the vulnerable, and where as many people as possible have good jobs with living wages, where everybody has a fair shot and the support they need to take that shot. A merciful community is a just community. As the philosopher Cornel West has put it, justice is what love looks like in public. So the church is thoroughly political in this basic sense, but shouldn't be political at all in the partisan sense. The church's political reflection should always steer sharply away from partisanship and steer sharply toward broad themes and deep, enduring principles for how our life as a community should be organized. In short, go big, go broad, go deep, or go home. Well, that sounds great, someone might say, but which political issues of the day should the church weigh in on with these broad themes and deep principles? All of them? Or just the occasional one or two? A helpful approach here follows from one of the best ways to read the Bible generally. Precisely because the biblical library is so diverse, the task is never to simply find a single verse here or there, or even a handful of verses, to proof text our pre-existing opinion. Rather, we should read widely and broadly in the Bible, looking for repeated themes that weave through many of the Bible's books. The more frequently a theme or principle is mentioned, and in particular the more frequently Jesus mentions it, the more confident the church can be in proclaiming it. This sounds like common sense, and it is, and at the same time, it's pretty damning considering how much of the church's public discourse these days, at least the stuff that often ends up in the news, is actually pretty peripheral in the Bible itself. What are the big, broad, central political themes in the Bible's library? Freedom from slavery, reaching out and including the marginalized, welcoming immigrants, helping the hungry and sick, caring for creation, living with boldness and humility. These are the political issues, the communal issues, the church should be known for. Because these are the issues, among others, that actually appear repeatedly in the Bible. Here's another story that can help. 
a parable from the Gospel of Luke, where Jesus compares our situation to a tenacious widow who's been denied justice, but refuses to give up. Again and again, she marches down to the courthouse to make her demands, so persistently, in fact, that even the unjust judge who sits on the bench eventually gives in. Translated literally, the judge says, Because this widow causes trouble for me, I will give her justice so that she may not in the end give me a black eye by her coming. The Greek word for to give a black eye is a term Jesus borrows from boxing, believe it or not. In other words, for Jesus, when it comes to justice, we have to be willing to keep at it, and at least metaphorically to fight for it, repeatedly returning to the courthouse, so to speak, with the tenacity and boldness of a widow. And by the way, throughout scripture, widows are often icons for both vulnerability and strength. From Tamar to Ruth to Naomi to Anna to the widow with the wicked right hand here in this parable. To pray for justice so fervently that our lives become prayers for justice. Praying with our feet, as the Jewish thinker Abraham Joshua Heschel once put it, speaking of what it was like to march alongside Martin Luther King Jr. To pray with our feet. To pray with our lives. So, if the first principle is that the church's mission is both profoundly political and steadfastly nonpartisan, and the second principle is that the church's politics should always focus broadly on central themes in the Bible's library, a third principle is that the church should follow the widow's lead, continually insisting on justice, praying with our feet, heading down yet again to the courthouse, despite how long the odds may seem. For justice is what love looks like in public, and love, both privately and publicly, is the essence of the merciful mission of the Church. Living out mercy in this way requires faith, that is, courage, boldness, the audacity of a widow marching down to confront an unjust judge, no doubt with Tamar and Ruth and Naomi and Anna and Jesus at her side. The audacity of a Jew and a Christian marching arm in arm for civil rights, praying with their feet. The audacity of the church at every turn, refusing to be partisan and insisting on being political in that basic sense of building the beloved community, the kind of society we can discern by tracing the broad strokes, the common themes we find in the Bible's library. Such faith, such courage, often takes the form of praise, of finding the good and praising it, and it also takes the form of justice, of finding the broken and repairing it, finding the unfair and correcting it, finding the remedy, the better way of living, and insisting on it, refusing to take no for an answer, praying so fervently, walking so prayerfully, that our lives become prayers and our communities become just. The church is mercy, faith, 
praise and justice. What does all this look like in a local church, down on First and Main, on an ordinary Sunday morning and throughout the week? That is our subject in the next and concluding episode, part five of this five-part series on understanding church. Strange New World is a SALT project production, written and produced by me, Matthew Meyer-Bolton, with help from Elizabeth Meyer-Bolton. Music is by Blue Dot Sessions, Pablo J. Garman, and Epidemic Sound. If you like what you hear, spread the word and give us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It really does help people find us. And drop us a line at community at saltproject.org. Thanks for listening, and see you next time.